Welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast. This is where we connect with healthcare providers from various clinical settings to learn more about how they are leading through innovation, protocol development, and integration of evidence to provide excellent clinical care to their patients. Join the conversation with your hosts from Medical Affairs at Baxter Canada. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the iConnect with Baxter Canada podcast series. My name is Mohamed Al-Sukni. I'm a medical science liaison with the medication delivery team at Baxter Canada, and I will be your host for this episode. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you interesting and relevant topics that impact your day-to-day practice as a clinician. With us today is Dr. Kevin Hansen, who is an assistant director of pharmacy at Moses Cone Memorial Hospital in Greensboro, North Carolina. We have a great topic for today's episode, which is all about IV medication preparation and administration practices. All right, so thank you for joining us today, Kevin. Absolutely, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, I just wanted to ask you, can you share with our listeners what areas of practice you are interested and involved in? Absolutely. So. Um I'm currently in my role, the assistant director of pharmacy at our flagship hospital, Moses Cone Memorial Hospital, uh, part of Cone Health. And so we're a multi-hospital health system here in Greensboro, North Carolina, um, that comprises of over 1,200 acute care beds. Uh, We have acute centers. We have cancer centers, outpatient pharmacies, essentially everything that you would have under an accountable care organization. So my role within um, the organization here is to provide uh, operational leadership oversight for um, pharmaceutical compounding. So that could be for sterile admixtures, non-sterile admixtures, hazardous drug handling, and compliance with all of the interrelated standards, regulations, accreditation uh, surrounding um, these topics. Uh, So certainly the United States Pharmacopeia, uh, USP Chapter 795, 797, and 800, are certainly areas of expertise of myself and um, ensure that we, we are compliant with those. And really from a practice and interest perspective um, is around uh, patient safety. Um, so we know that sterile compounding is one of the riskiest things that we do in pharmacy practice is how can we leverage technology and automation to make this not only safe for our, our patients to prevent errors and make sure that we have highly accurate and precise doses, but even from a hazardous drug perspective of how can we protect our employees so they're not getting exposed to those drugs. Um, so that's kind of um, my practice areas in a nutshell, if you will. Yeah, and this is a critical area uh, you know, across uh, North America in terms of uh, the manufacturing as well as the pharmaceutical compounding. Uh, so your expertise lie in the pharmaceutical compounding space. Um, so when you're thinking about IV preparations that are administered in hospitals, there is a spectrum of compounding methods or admixture types used. So what does the data tell us when ranking the various methods from a safety perspective? Sure. Um, Excellent question. Um, So as we look at providing a sterile injectable medication um, to a patient, uh, there's actually a myriad of ways uh, within the pharmacy that those can be prepared or packaged, uh, delivered, and administered um, to a given patient. And so because there's so many options, uh, one needs to look at what are the risks associated with each or what are the, the chances that an error could occur? Um, and, and we'll dive into that a little bit as well. 
And so this is something that we've really delved deep into here within our own organization and saying, how can we shift towards um, the areas of providing sterile injectables in in the safest manner possible? And so that spectrum um, that we looked at and really starting with the the safest way to supply uh, an intravenous medication, we'll start with, is with a ready-to-administer or a premixed product, something that does not require any form of manipulation to uh, administer it to your to your patient. Um, these are usually conventionally manufactured um, products coming from our manufacturing um, plants, and these are coming. Uh, uh, they they have stability studies. They're they have a barcode on them. They're labeled in a safe manner. Um, they're overseen by, of course, regulatory agencies that have a high degree for. Um, uh, manufacturing quality and safety through current good manufacturing practices. That's really where we need to strive to be. And so that's really where we look at to start is how can we get our premix um, products and maximize the use of these ready-to-administer preparations. Well, we, we need to look at other methods because unfortunately there's not ready-to-administer or premix products for every type of sterile injectable medication that our patients need, especially within the acute care setting. And so some other options, and we'll, we'll go into some of the, the mentioned uh, error rates or potential for error, uh, could be some um, ready-to-use devices. So these are uh, some proprietary devices that are on the market. There's a handful of different manufacturers of these out there where you can essentially dock a medication vial. Usually it's a lyophilized powder to this docking system that integrates it with a fluid bag. And prior to administration of that, it can be activated by the administrating user, uh, most likely a nurse in most hospital um, cases. Um, it would reconstitute the medication and it would add that into the bag for dilution. So it's, as, it's, it's close to a ready to administer in the forms of, of some of the error rates. Um, however, because there is some form of manipulation, there's still some docking steps that are there. Um, uh, there is some increased level of risk. And so that's why that would be the next um, agent that we would look at for providing a sterile admixture. Well, um, of course, you know, um, like all drugs and all materials, they are also subject to going on shortage. And so um, having a plan to, you know, what happens if we need, let's say, a partial vial um, where, you know, a docking system does not work well because it only goes into whole vial or whole dose amounts. Um, or what if you can't get these devices um, at the time, is then you would look at either a low-risk mixture, which would be, you know, having that within the ISO Class 5 primary, primary engineering control hood. You would be mixing, diluting, reconstituting that, generally done within the pharmacy, within a cleanroom setting or a segregated compounding area. Um, mixing that, adding to that bag, and essentially customizing that for that individualized patient in that prescription order. Um, Now, because of all of that complexity, you can start seeing that the more steps that you add in the process, the more manipulations, especially with a sterile injectable, you're going to be increasing the level of potential for risk, right? And so this would be the next category that we would would look at. Well, the other category is medium risk. So it's essentially the same as a low-risk preparation, but you would be mixing uh, multiple doses or for multiple patients at a time, usually using bulk uh, ingredients. And uh, similar to the requirements for low risk, um, having that, of course, in a clean room inside of a hood setting, 
But now um, we have that potential that if an error was made, instead of harming a single patient, you could be harming a multitude of patients because of the, the size of the batching um, the, um, that, that's occurring. So from an error risk potential, that would be the next category that would be looked at. Well, one of the other things um, to look at providing a sterile injectable is um, IV push. And typically with IV push uh, medications, this is supplying a medication vial, uh, some diluent, a syringe, a needle, uh, alcohol swabs, and actually have that being prepared at the bedside or on the nursing unit um, uh, for the nurses to administer. And the reason that this is kind of further down on the list is because now the nurse or the administrating user is performing all the steps. They're retrieving the drug. They're um, uh, you know, making sure they have the right diluent that's uh, compatible with that drug. They are reconstituting it, further diluting it, drawing it up, ensuring that they have the five rights with the right patient at the right time. They're administering it at the right rate. So um, you can imagine all of those steps. And you know, the literature shows that, especially in the med preparation with the reconstitution, is often that step is done inappropriately. And then that can certainly cause harm to our patients. Right. And the very last thing that we can do to get a sterile medication to our patient is actually through the means of high-risk uh, compounding. And when I use the, uh, the term high-risk, um, is really referring to the USP 797 um, definition, but it's, it's starting with a bulk active pharmaceutical ingredient, and normally those are non-sterile starting ingredients. And so if we need to have a final sterile product as our final um, uh, preparation that we're delivering to, to the patient, it has to undergoing a sterilization step. So this could be uh, through filtration. Uh, this could be through terminal sterilization, such as an autoclave and um, um, other types of methods of terminal sterilization. And again, you can see that we're, gro we're growing in the complexity and it's called high risk is because you're starting with a known non-sterile ingredient or, or equipment that is used in the, in the aseptic uh, process. And so this would certainly um, represent not only the highest error potential, but also if an error were to occur, um, you know, certainly could cause some severe harm um, to the patient. And so um, putting all of this data together, looking at these error rates, looking at the potential for error, this creates that spectrum of how can we shift everything to the left of moving closer to these ready-to-use and ready-to-administer um, forms of these medications so we can reduce um, um, any types of error that we have in our settings. And ultimately, that's going to protect our, our patients and make sure that they're safe. Yeah, so it's it's very interesting. It's such a wide spectrum of different compounding or admixing methods. And you clearly outlined um, the risks with some of these uh, different methods and getting us towards uh, more of a pre-mixed or ready-to-use uh, method of administration. Um, you know, when, when we're looking at Health Canada's uh, policies on compounding, they state compounding should only be done if there is a therapeutic need or lack of product availability and should not be done solely for economic reasons for the healthcare professionals. And I think that cl very clearly speaks to the fact that uh, it should only be done um, in a situation where a premixed product is not available on the market. Now, when we talk yep. about admixtures, um, they can be prepared either by nurses on the units or in pharmacy. What are the safety implications for each? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and so really, you know, to answer this question, I, I, I actually look um, into our past. And so um, there's been some great studies um, in the 70s 
that actually looked at nursing admixture programs and found that in this observational study, there was a 22% error rate. Um, and not only was, you know, the error rate uh, very alarming, but also the practices that were occurring in today's standard, we would view as, you know, we would never allow events, um, such as uh, nurses adding concentrated potassium chloride and having um, that stocked on the nursing units to add to these large volume fluids. Um, certainly is a, is a unsafe practice um, and something that, that should be avoided um, at, you know, at all costs. And so it's not only necessarily the error rate, but also to, to the risky practices um, that are out there, right? Um, and when we think about our, our nurses and how can we correct some of that error rates, again, it's that large burden of number of steps being placed on those individuals, is, um, is there any technology that can assist? Well, um, barcoding is an excellent form of technology that nurses use to ensure they're, they're administering the right medication. Um, and this can be done to scan um, the product, um, and it can compare against an NDC database to make sure that that is the right medication. I think the thing that's really pertinent is to note is that for sterile compounds or multi-ingredient preparations, the barcode at the time of administration is not effective because generally the barcode that they're scanning on the label or the product that they prepare is just checking, does a patient have an active order for this label that you just scanned? It does not fix what, you know, did the right ingredients actually make it into that bag or into that syringe? And so that is where somewhere that pharmacy can help with is that um, as much as we call the nurse barcode administration or BCMA is that term is how do we get pharmacy involved from a BCMP or barcode med preparation? So now we actually add the, the same level of technology, but earlier in the process where we are barcoding the ingredients as they are going into the bag to ensure that we have that check there and couple that with the BCMA that our nurses are doing. That creates a multi-tiered or multi-level um, safety um, net for our patients that, that they need. And so th that is where uh, pharmacy and nursing can, can certainly collaborate and, and work together to have those safety nets um, built in. Um, further, you know, if you think about um, you know, in a large academic institution like ourselves um, here in Greensboro, we, we have um, a multitude of nursing units. Well, when we think of some of the economics, like does it make economic sense to have some of these IV workflow technologies that are out there and to place them in all the nursing units? That would be a, a very, very, very high cost that uh, I think few would be able to support. However, if you have a pharmacy and having all the things go through a single preparation area or a single clean room, you could place that technology and really get the value and the added safety benefits um, from that. So those are a few things that I think about of, you know, which, which um, you know, personnel are best aligned from a training and experience perspective to do the right work. Our nurses are experts in the administration of drugs, um, looking for the adverse events and, um, uh, and working with the patients at the bedside. And pharmacy is the drug experts. We know the compatibility, we know the drug information, the interactions with the container. And so uh, as we think through that, that, that really should be pharmacy's role in the process and will add additional safety nets into ensuring our patients are safe. Yeah, and I think that really highlights the importance of collab close collaboration between nursing and pharmacy uh, in the administration and preparation of all IV medications. Now, just hearing all this, it's clear to me that Moving towards a pre-mixed solution, if it's available, 
uh, it would be the gold standard. Uh, what other benefits do premixes provide? Yes. Um, so when we think about premixes, or I'll even think about um, comparison. So for organizations that, you know, maybe there's a premix on the market, but they've elected to continue to compound it. Of um, Some organizations may view that item that they're preparing as equivalent to this premix that's on the market that's made by, a, you know, a manufacturer. And where I think it's important is to actually separate those two is, you know, at, at the end of the day, let's say it's a cephazolin 2 gram. I'm just going to make up a drug for organizations that compound that versus buying a conventionally manufactured product is those should be viewed as very different. And as in our, um, our facilities and, and the registrations that we work within is we are not required to follow currently manufacturing practices, right? And really would it make sense for, um, you know, taking care of acutely ill patients? There's, you know, we have to get these medications to our patients in a timely manner. We can't wait, for example, for a 14-day sterility test before we can offer that um, to the patient. Um, they need it before then. And that's why some of the standards like USB 797 exist um, to allow for that compounding. As you described, really, if there's a true therapeutic need for that. So in my eyes, if there is a manufacturer that's producing a premix, there really is no therapeutic need that you need to compound that unless there was some type of issue with a specific patient. Let's say there was a, a, um, an inactive ingredient, a preservative something within that, that premix dosage form that um, or therapeutically would not be good for the patient um, that you have in mind. That's, what, that's why compounding exists, right? And so, um, so what are the benefits then? If these are not equivalent um, and they potentially cost different, well, well what makes them better? Where, what are some of those benefits? So first and foremost is that they're compounded or prepared, manufactured, I should say, under current good manufacturing practices. This is superior um, to, you know, a minimum standard like a USB 797 is, um, does not have risk-based models like we see with low, medium, and high risk um, and has more levels of assurance. And some of the differences you'll see with not only the robustness of the facilities and the practices, but actually the validity of those. And so CGMP is more, you know, proving that your practices or your clean room is designed in a way um, to, you know, to prevent contamination of these, uh, uh, you know, of these products that are manufactured, um, that your sterilization cycles are, are able to achieve the pharmaceutical level of sterilization needed um, to be able to release some of these products. And so from a safety perspective, I view a current good manufacturing, conventionally manufactured product as, as sterile, as safe, um, as the concentration has been validated and we have more assurance that that is the case um, compared to how it's labeled. Um, for these um, uh, prepared or compounded products within our environments, there's a lot of unknowns. Recall that we're working from a risk-based perspective. Now, we may have some studies on file that show that, you know, a certain drug at a certain concentration, concentration for a certain duration of time is stable for so long, but there's a lot of competing variables. Uh, there, there's light, there's heat, there's humidity. Well, maybe they didn't use the same type of PVC or plastic bag in the study that you're using at your facility. So there's a lot of changes in variables. And if you're not doing the appropriate level of testing, you're not actually sure what is truly going on. 
Um, and unless you're tracking therapy failures and um, at the patient level, that can be very hard to relate that back to you have a problem with your, your compounding process, right? The, the last thing I'll, that, that I'll mention is for continuous infusion products. So we think about our fentanyl infusions, norepinephrine, things we're using in the ICU setting, is that the concentration of those products is, is really important as those are used to titrate the dosing um, to affect. Um, and so that concentration is very, very important to have accurate and precise. Um, so for many organizations that use a pre-filled fluid bag, for example, of a 0.9% sodium chloride or 5% dextrose, is even though those bags may be labeled as 100 milliliters or 250 milliliters, it's also important to note that many manufacturers um, are adding overfill um, to these bags for uh, many reasons that they do that. But it's, it's an important point to know that there's overfill in these bags and it's usually done within a set range. And so how do you account for that overfill? How do you ensure that if you're adding a drug to that, that you are labeling it with an accurate level of concentration um, per milliliter with that overfill in mind? And so these are some of the challenges that we have with preparing in our organizations without doing the appropriate level of testing, which you don't have to question when you buy a premix from a manufacturer, uh, because those are tested and those are validated, and you you should know that that you can expect that concentration, um, um, and, you know, as long as that product's within date and is within its uh, identified storage conditions. Now, these are all excellent points that you brought up. Uh, as you alluded to, though, uh, cost is usually an, a factor for any organization. Uh, typically, premixes may come in at a higher price point than admixing the product itself. So how, how do you go about justifying it from uh, using a higher price product within a, uh, an organization? And, and I think this is a common misconception um, and, and not to the point where sometimes premixes are. Yes, they are more expensive, but it's important to say, what are you comparing it to? So is it more expensive of comparing the drug cost to the drug cost for me to prepare it? Well, it likely is going to be different and it's going to be more expensive. Where, where, where some folks um, fall short is thinking about all of the resources that go into you actually preparing a product. So it's not just the drug cost. It's also the diluent. It's the materials. It's the clean room. It's the overhead. It's the labor. Um, there's a lot more factors that go into it. And if you even think about the beyond use states, once you prepare a product, we have these limited beyond use states that we live within. And so what is your level of waste that you have on that product um, with expiring products that, you know, that are not used. And so um, this, this is an important, I guess what I'm advocating for is, is when you do that analysis is do what I consider a full pharmacoeconomic analysis where you're, you're able to compare apples to apples and not just looking at the drug cost, but factoring in all of those additional considerations. And once you do that, and we've, we've done, this analysis quite extensively within our organ, own organization is many times our manual preparations are the same cost, if not more expensive than these uh, equivalent premixed products that can be, that can be purchased. Um, and some of those with that analysis is the reduction of waste, right? So if I'm making a product and it's only good for nine days in the refrigerator versus if I'm able to buy a premix and I can have it for 90 days at room temperature, well, that's going to allow me within my supply chain to get a much longer time to ensure that that's going to get used and not, and not get wasted. And so I think those are important aspects to consider when you're looking at the economic impact 
of purchasing um, these premix. Also think about the error rates, right? We talked earlier about doing low and medium risk and IV push and the risks associated with them. But we also have to think about when errors do occur in the preparation process, you know, that, that whole entire preparation is usually tossed out and, you know, you start over. Well, you have to factor in the cost of all of that additional waste you have from errors that may happen in the process. And as long as you have, you know, manual humans in the process, there will be errors, right? And so that, that's also something to look at. So do the full pharmacoeconomic analysis, take the time, look at all the associated costs. And I think many, when they do this, will, will actually be quite surprised about how much overhead cost is actually going into your sterile preparation program and may make the pill a little bit easier to swallow um, for um, being able to purchase some of these premixes. Um, and, it's, and it's really, again, um, something when we look for the value of our patients is not only the cost reduction, but also the level of quality and safety that we're providing them, right? Those are important aspects of that value equation that should not be understated. Absolutely. Yeah, these are critical points. And I think, you know, uh, you really speak to a lot of the hidden costs that need to be investigated uh, when considering the two options. Now, premix solutions aren't um, widely available for every type of drug or product that we need out there. So what are you, in your point of view, What's the next best option when premixes aren't available? Yeah, great question. So sterile compounding is always going to exist. I think it would be a fallacy to think that our manufacturers are going to be able to supply us everything and ready to administer premix form. Um, and you know, while certainly there may be opportunities for them to increase that level, um, there, the sterile compounding is always going to exist. And so with that. Uh, that risk that exists with this, these practices, this is where I think technology and automation has a significant, um, uh, you know, significant opportunity um, in this space. And so when I, you know, when I say technology, this is the barcodes, this is the, the camera verification, this is validating volume through flow metrics, photometrics, image recognition, or gravimetrics. It's all of those things to really depict on some of those hidden or invisible errors that may um, bring that to the light of the compounder and the verifying pharmacist. Um, I think those are going to be critical. There's been very slow adoption um, of this, um, of these types of technologies, some of it limited by the cost, um, of course. But I think as the adoption rate continues to increase and people really see the value of these technologies, it's, it's going to become a standard practice, in, in, in my opinion. Now, the flip side of this is while the accuracy, the precision, reducing errors in the compounding is really important, because these are sterile injectables, we also need to ensure that they are sterile and we are not contaminating them during the process. Well, it just so happens that the compounding personnel, us humans, are the main contributors to microbiological failures. And that can be done through, you know, touch contamination, through garbing practices, through, you know, inappropriate cleaning and disinfecting. Um, you know, there's a multitude of factors that, that go into that. And so this is where automation, in my opinion, comes in. So there are certainly um, uh, countries in the world that have leveraged more automation than other countries of using um, IV robotics, um, for example. And um, when you look into USP Chapter 1211 on sterility assurance, they really talk about this concept of, of sterility assurance of how do we actually minimize limit or you know, completely eliminate personnel interaction during the aseptic transferring processes, right? 
And so this could be done through these types of separative technologies and automation, like a IV robot that is encased within a restricted access barrier system, providing laminar ISO class five air um, into there with very limited access of materials in and out um, for the individual to load the drugs, the materials, the needles, the syringes, um, so on and so forth. This is a huge opportunity for us to have this as standard practice, especially when we talk about medium risk or batching and things that are going to be going out to a lot of patients. We want to make sure that those are not only accurate, but but also sterile. So both technology and automation is, is going to be the answer for our profession to ensure that we are able to do sterile compounding in a safe way. All excellent points. So Kevin, I'd like to thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. It's been a really insightful conversation and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. I hope you learned as much as I did from my conversation with Dr. Kevin Hansen. Now please reach out to us by email if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. And don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss our next episode. Thank you for joining us for the episode of I Connect with Baxter. All of the opinions and experiences expressed in this episode are those of the guest speaker and do not necessarily reflect those of Baxter Canada. If there are other areas of interest you would like to see included on future podcasts, please email those to iConnect at Baxter.com.